good user experience happens when there's actual value that's provided for users and its impact is obvious. Um, it's obvious in many ways. And, in, you know, we try to put some structure around what that means. How is it obvious? We provide metrics, like we'll measure CSAT or we'll measure, you know, performance or latency or all these different things. But really like, you know, you're nodding, I'm nodding. We know when we see it. Um, it's really just a question of how to achieve that and especially to achieve it at scale with a, a large team or a large set of products. What's up, everybody? I'm Guo, and you're listening to the Not Just Pixel Show. There's a lot to learn as a designer. So in this show, I sit down with design professionals to understand how to grow as a designer and help you get that UX design internship or job. Let's get into it. Today, I'm talking to Heather Cassano. Heather is now the Senior Director of UX at Google, leading the Google Play team with over 100 people. Before this, she was a product design leader at tech companies such as Facebook, Google, Pearson, and Yahoo. Oof. Honestly, in the beginning, I was quite nervous talking to Heather, considering she's in such a high-level position. But now, I'm so glad that I did. I learned so much about leadership, ways to communicate the value of design, her day-to-day as a senior director of UX at Google, and so much more. I'm sure you'll love this one. So... Without further ado, here's my conversation with Heather Cassano. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I wanted to go back in time in 2003, and that was when you became the principal UX director at Semantics. And before that, you worked primarily as a software engineer. I was wondering, what was that transition process like, and what led you to make that transition into more of a managerial role? Yeah, that's a great question, first of all. Um, so I would say prior to that, to 2003, there there really wasn't a discipline called UX or user experience design. So I was actually, I was a software engineer, but I was also a designer, um, maybe at the beginning more of like a wannabe designer, but over time, uh, I think I expanded to uh, really having a, a good expertise in both design and coding. Uh, And that was, like I said, there really wasn't people that were specific to design back then. So if you were really interested in design of products and, um, and also kind of the psychology of building products that really work for people, you kind of had to be an engineer or you really weren't going to have any way to influence what was happening. So that's, that's actually why I landed in engineering at the beginning. So I I would say I was doing both. Um, And then there came a time and, and actually probably was at Symantec maybe a little bit before that where. Um, I kind of had to choose between the two because the industry around UX had started to mature and there really was at that time, it was like there were specific people that focused on design and also research. And then there was people that, that coded. And so I did kind of have to make a choice. Do I want to keep, um, you know, focusing on engineering and front end engineering, which was something that I was very interested in, or do I really want to go into sort of UX and also management and leadership and I think for me, um, the design part had always just resonated a little bit more. And I also felt like being a designer that can speak the language of engineering was really compelling and would really help me to be successful. And a lot of other designers that I was working with in meeting didn't have that background or skill set. And so um, so I felt like it was something unique that I could bring um, into the work that I was doing. So that was kind of why I chose at some point to stop stop coding, although I never 
really wanted to stop coding. Um, and I kind of haven't, um, I still try to keep my fingers in that a little bit, but, um, but just really focusing more on UX and leadership. Yeah. I actually have a, a follow up on that. I think, um, because you mentioned that you were choosing between design development and also, I guess, more of the, the managerial and leadership mm-hmm. part. I was wondering then was that a transition more towards the leadership part and what, what made you wanted to go towards that path? Yeah, that one was just kind of another fork in the road in my career. So I, I had always been what I would call an IC, like an individual contributor, um, for the most part throughout the first, you know, at least decade of my career. Um, I, I worked at my first um, sort of impactful job was at Sun Microsystems. And I was a, my title was basically member of technical staff the team I was on was the human factors team and actually got really lucky to be a part of that team. So I was an engineer, but I was actually building out front end and designing front end components. Um, and it was so much fun and I learned so much there. Uh, and then, but it was, you know, I was really my own person. I didn't have direct reports. I didn't, I wasn't leading a team. And then after that, I ran my own company for a while. And so I was on my own, you know, I wasn't even working for other companies really. Um, at Semantic was the first time where I started managing a small team. Um, and then after that, I think I kind of dabbled in it. I went to, I went and worked at Google after that. Um, I was an IC there. And, and so I was on my own and I was a, kind of a senior level designer. Um, but I realized that I'm just, I think one of my strengths is in leadership and I also gravitate toward it. I like leading people. And I also felt like for me, I could be more impactful um, if I had a team of people, it just helped me to scale out the work that I really wanted to do because there's just more more ability to do that. Um, it's really hard being a leader too, though. So, you know, for me, it was a little bit at the beginning when I first started doing it. The first time I had a really large leadership role was at Yahoo. And at that point, um, I grew a team up to, I think it was maybe 85 people or something during that time I was there. And that was a really that for me, like a transformational experience because I had never, I had led a small team, like I said, but I had never had this sort of large team with teams within it, you know? So it wasn't like I was just managing some people. I was managing a whole bunch of teams and trying to get them to work together well. And, um, and that's, that's a whole different problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I was thinking, yeah, if you fit 85 people in a room, that's, that's a lot of people (laughs) and like managing all these people. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I'm sure. It is. is. Yeah. That was one of the reasons I took that role because when I first started there, I, I felt the same way as the way you just described. I was, um, in fact, I was thinking, I don't know if I can even do this. Like this is, this is too much for me. You know, I've never done that before. Um, Also, it was a hard problem from a design perspective too. So we had to take a number of different parts, people from different parts of Yahoo, as well as from some acquisitions that Yahoo had bought and bring them all together into a unified UX team and start to align them around a new product where we could bring everything together and build a product that made more sense. Um, so it was, it was a strategic role. It was also like a people, you know, sort of hiring people and setting up a team type of role um, and it was really overwhelming at first. I, I, I didn't even think I could do it. Um, I was like, this is way beyond me. And my husband was like, of course you can. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so I kind of took a leap of faith and I so glad I did. Cause I really, I learned how to do that work. I also re- 
um, reported to this person who I really respect as a leader. And I learned so much from him over the, I think, four years that I did that role um, about leading teams. And he obviously, he had an even larger team with more, you know, challenges and strategic impact than I had. Um, but I, wa- I watched him every day and the decisions that he made and the way that he approached leadership. And I learned so much from that. And I think by the end of that role, I realized like my sweet spot, I can do design. I think I'm pretty, pretty decent at design and I can code. Um, but my sweet spot is leading teams and, and sort of galvanizing people around a vision. Uh, that's what I do really well. And I, I thrive on it. So that's, that's when I made the leap to every other role I've had since then has been leading a large team. Right. I think one follow-up that I really wanted to ask was at what point in your career did you realize that leadership is the sweet spot for you? Was it through work experiences or was it with how you interacted with people? Yeah. What what was that inspiration from? I think it was at Yahoo where I really started to feel like I'm actually, I'm learning. I'm not perfect at this, but I'm like, I I, um, have a talent for bringing people together um, so I, I think it was probably because I had, you know, I had a lot of success, even though I also had some failures in that, in that, uh, role, but I also had a lot of success in terms of being able to put together a cohesive vision, um, both for the team and where, where that we wanted the team to go. And also for this sort of product, which was a brand new thing for Yahoo at the time. Um, and I enjoyed both parts of that equally. And I, I think I felt after that, like any role that I take needs to include both of those components for, for me to really feel like I can, I should be here. <laughs> I should be right. contributing in this way. Yeah. Um, so I think that was where I finally figured that one out. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like figuring out why you're actually doing the thing itself, like going through the failures and also the successes that comes with the role. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's always hard, I think, to to figure that out about yourself. For me, it's like, I kind of um, go with my gut uh, and I try to follow what drives me from a um, sort of passion perspective. Uh, Like, is this something that is really filling me up or is it depleting me of energy? (laughs) Is it something that really like is interesting where I'm learning? I love to learn new things. Um, So usually if I'm thinking about a new role, for example, I'll pick something where it's new for me and I don't really know that much about it. And it's going to be this really like complex challenge in some way, um, both from a perspective of like, what's the product we're building, but also maybe from a team perspective. And, um, and that is what keeps me going. And then when I get to the point where I'm in a role and it's like, starts to get a little more mundane, you know, like, Mm. okay, we already figured it out. Now we're kind of just executing. That's when I start to feel, Oh, this, you know, I'm not like looking forward to, my day maybe or there's signals that I listen to in my head like I think it's time for a new challenge I think I also wanted to consult on because throughout your career you mentioned you started out leading teams at semantics and that was as you mentioned a small team um up to this point where you're leading around I think over a hundred or even more people I was wondering what are the different types of challenges at different cuts of the team sizes and um yeah what what are the specific challenges that you face for those yeah i think um the first one is just moving from a mindset of i'm an individual contributor to i'm managing some people and 
and then trying to get your head around like what, how much of my role is actually creating and designing and researching whatever your UX role is versus managing these people and helping them to become successful and impactful. Um, that's the first step, I think. And then, and then I think the next sort of humongous leap happens when you have manager, managers under you. So instead of just having like a team of five to 10 or something like that, you suddenly have a team of maybe you have like two or three different managers who are managing their own teams and they report up to you. And that's a whole different problem space. Um, and I think it's, it's hard for people to make the leap from, from, you know, sort of simple, simple, smaller teams to these large organizations. And I, I think it's something that I've learned. I certainly wasn't good at it the first time I did it. Um, but I've learned a lot about it. I, I think some of the components that are really important to think about when you're managing managers are how do you set up the organization? So instead of thinking about, you know, each individual or sort of low level design work, you're thinking more about how can I set up this organization so that these teams can work together in the very best way and really maximize the impact that they have with each other. Um, and in doing that, setting up an org structure in a way that makes sense, um, I don't know if you've heard of Conway's law, but I talk about Conway's law a lot, um, which basically says that the way that different companies will set up their organizations usually mirrors the way that they communicate with each other. Um, and there's these funny, if you Google search Conway's law and org structure, you'll see these funny uh, kind of comics about the different org structures that different companies create. Mm -hmm. Um matrixed versus there's one, I think, I think it's Microsoft where they all have like guns pointed at each other. <laughs> it's, it's just funny. But anyways, I think that um, the best way to do it is to really, especially for design organizations is to really think about who your users are and what their user journeys look like. And then organizing the team around related sort of clusters of user journeys, because then you're really helping the team to focus in the right way. You, you want to set it up so that they're not, you know, competing with each other, they're not getting territorial, that they're actually all having sort of a clean area of ownership, but then knowing how they're related to each other and that they can have maximum amount of sharing in, in a positive way. So there's a lot of ways to do that. For example, setting up a horizontal team that can work across. For example, if you were going to create a design system, that's something that you might start to think about when you have this big, huge team. I, I'm just doing that now in the team I'm leading. So we're setting up a horizontal design system team that works across all of the different sort of more product focused teams to make sure that everything we do is has high levels of quality is adhering to our design language at Google, which is called material design and, um, and you know, just has a, a, a similar brand aesthetic and visual aesthetic and things like that. Um, so that's that's really important. And if you're if you're not really thinking that way, then you end up having a lot of repetitive work, um, potentially tension and people sort of like, why are you doing that? I own that thing. Um, so the more that you can set it up for collaboration and not competition, the better. And that's just hard to, to do sometimes. So. Right. Yeah. I'm also curious, like throughout your career as more of a manager and also more of a director position, um, do you recall some of the mistakes that you made earlier in your career and how did you, what did you learn from those? And also how did you overcome from those? And these can probably even tie to like advices for like, I see designers who just transitioned into becoming like a design manager. Yeah. Um, 
I would say, you know, some of the things that I've learned through a lot of, you know, um, hard lessons, I'll just Mm -hmm. put it that way, Mm -hmm. um, are, I think I'm a very optimistic person. And sometimes I will come into a situation and kind of assume that, yeah, there's got to be a way, you know, we're going to figure this out. We're going to make this happen. And um, there are times when I personally um, can't control the outcome of a situation. And I think one of the things I've had to learn is to determine when that's the case and to kind of make my own decisions based on that and not really waste my time with things and put my energy to things that I can't directly influence. Um, And that's been a hard lesson to learn and and a really important one, I think, too, because I feel like time is your time. My time is really precious. And um, I really care deeply about the work that I'm doing and I want it to be meaningful to me and in the world and impactful. And, and so I don't want to sit around for long periods of time trying to do something that's like basically beating on a brick wall, you know, like something that's really not, that's intractable. Uh, so I think that's one of the lessons. And, and for me now, I'm just much more careful when I make a decision, choose a role, hire a candidate, you know, whatever it is, um, to make sure that the ability um, to, to succeed is actually there. Not that it has to be easy. It doesn't. But a good example is um, in choosing a role is thinking about who's going to be your manager and whether that person and then maybe the people above them too um, actually care about and support what you want to do. So they actually care about user experience and they're going to invest in it and they may not have to know everything about it, but they're going to support you in making sure that the work you, you do is impactful um, from that perspective and as well as support you in your growth and learning. Um, and so, you know, I've had some bad experiences in my career where, where I've worked for somebody that really just didn't care at all um, or wasn't invested. And so I go into it sometimes like, okay, I'm going to change their mind. I'm going to do all these things. Um, and that's possible, but it's also sometimes hard and, uh, takes a lot of energy and, uh, you know, can, can really set you up for a negative situation too. Mm-hmm. And when you say not interested, you meant not interested in the user experience yeah. part of things. Exactly. It. Yeah. It de- yeah. It depends. I mean, it depends where you work. I think, um, different companies, different people have different philosophies, but there are definitely people that are much more focused on the business side, you know, revenue, um, a lot of other stats, uh, and less, Inter, you know, less interested in users and trying to bring them value, which is what I care about. So, This is more of a, I guess, a selfish question on my part, because um, I think one thing that I'm starting to encounter as I do internships is that the, the idea that I have to try to be a design advocate, like an advocate for the, the user experience part of things, the other people that are not necessarily designers. Um, are there any, I guess, like things you've learned along the way to help do that, like to help communicate the fact that design is important in the development process? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I, I like that you point that out because I feel like that's a very unique um, differentiator for UX in that we we always end up, I think, having to be an advocate. And it's not that people don't care, but they're just not, you know, they're not as... Um, immersed in the life of users. So they don't necessarily have that perspective, um, even with across teams as well, or across a product where they, you can actually see 
the impact to users in a way that nobody else can. So then you end up being the advocate, the ones, a lot of times we say UX is the glue, like UX is what has that view across everything and can um, have perspective to be able to start to pull people together that might not normally be pulled together. Uh, so I think that's, that's really important piece of it. For sure. Are there any ways to trying to communicate the value to design to maybe people who are not necessarily um, designers on a team? Yeah, that one's, that one is so, so important. Um, I think even, so right now I'm in a new role at Google. I started in November. Um, and one of the things that I notice about the team I work in, and, and I don't mean the UX team, but I mean the broader, so a really important component of any leader's work is who their partners are. So usually it's product management, engineering, or maybe marketing or other areas. Um, but I, I definitely have noticed that those partners that I work with on a day-to-day basis, they don't have the familiarity or the visibility with our users that I do and my team does. And so it results in a lot of decisions that are made about the product that I think are more limited than they should be, where we're not actually considering the user the user point of view. Uh, some, of the, some of the ways that I've gone about changing that are um, to provide opportunities for them to really deeply immerse with users. So for example, when we do research, we do a ton of user research. Uh, a lot of times it's people will default to doing research kind of in a silo, like doing it, you know, on a Zoom call um, with the user and then doing a study of maybe, you know, they, they actually interview or work with 10 different users and then they'll write up a report and then they'll send the report via email to a bunch of people and then they're done. My perspective is that that is not meaningful, um, that the research should be more participatory than that. So meaning that there's no reason why people shouldn't be actually engaged during the research, participating in it, watching it, observing it, being part of it, and then being part of the debrief and the discussions that come after. Um, That's one opportunity, I think, for people to start to really understand users better. The other thing that I recommend is... um, the use of personas or archetypes to try to represent user segments, because uh, something that happens when people aren't engaged with users is they tend to use the first person to talk about users. This happens all the time. So they'll say like, I like it to be blue because I think this other thing over here is interesting and beautiful or, or, you know, my mom could figure this out or something like that. And they start to talk in first person. And the problem with that is those people are not the user. They never will be the user, even if they, they think they are, even if they technically match the criteria, um, they are not the user because they are biased because they're in, they're actually developing the product. So there's no way that they can put that, take that hat off and actually have a neutral point of view. So I, what I try to do is point that out to people. And I try to ask people to not speak in first person about users, but really to start to use the persona or archetype names, um, and really get to know those, those, um, characters very well and those are always well when they're done well they're based on research they're fact-based so that you can really um, talk about you know this particular user and give them a name understand their pain points their day their what's going on with them Um, and then when you start to do that and using third person using their actual name it really helps people to start to make that leap from this isn't designed for me this is designed for this other person who maybe I don't know as well as I should know, you know, and then the engagement can begin. Yeah, no, that's, I just took so much note from that. That was <laughs> super helpful. Yeah, I think, I feel like that's always one of the hardest part is 
um, trying to think of ways to make them think that design is valuable, which it is. Um, so I think yeah, you mentioned personas and also archetypes and also just being involved in the user research of yeah, things can make them exactly a um, lot more directly interacting with the users. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's one other example that I think is probably the most and the, and the easiest way to get that kind of impact with people is um, the participating in design sprints and the design sprint methodology. I, I think having somebody, especially somebody who doesn't get it, who doesn't really know much about UX or is also, or maybe they're a detractor. Maybe they're like, we don't need UX. Like we can just code it up ourselves. That happens a lot, right? And so if you can get a person like that um, and put them in a design sprint and go through the whole process where you actually have them drawing, working with designers on like, okay, great. You have these great ideas. Let's get them down on paper. Let's get them into a prototype. Then sit down and let's watch, you know, eight users actually use your idea and see what we learn. And um, and then let's go back to the drawing board and iterate, do a full, you know, iteration. I've never seen somebody come out of a design sprint like that um, and not having learned and not having sort of gained some humility around what it takes um, and some understanding of users and also just caring, you know, like, oh my gosh, usually people walk out of those and they're like, sign me up for another one next week. Like, I'm ready to do more, love- you know? So, uh, yeah, it's really effective. Yeah, no, I love that. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, and this is a question that I really wanted to hear your opinion on, is after so many years of working in the industry at such a high level, I think, in your opinion, what is good user experience? And it'll be great if you can provide an example of that. So I would say good user experience is, first of all, it's hard to achieve. It's really hard to achieve. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way because it's it's usually easy to spot. You know, people can use something and say, wow, that was, that was just so amazing. Like I didn't expect it to be so easy or so great or look what it did for me. Um, that's great UX. And Sometimes it's deceiving when it's like, oh, they must, you know, how, how long can I have take them? It's, it felt so easy, but it's actually really, really difficult to get to that point. There are so many ingredients that go into it. Um, but I think that the way I would describe it in sort of one sentence is, is uh, it good user experience happens when there's actual value that's provided for users and its impact is obvious. Um it's obvious in many ways. And, in, you know, we try to put some structure around what that means. How is it obvious? We provide metrics, like we'll measure CSAT or we'll measure, you know, performance or latency or all these different things. But really like, you know, you're nodding, I'm nodding. We know when we see it. Um, it's really just a question of how to achieve that and especially to achieve it at scale with a, a large team or a large set of products. Mm. Do you have any recent examples or any examples that you thought of where you felt like, oh, this was a really well thought out or even something that you didn't probably realize, but then you were like, oh, wait, this is a really good experience. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll maybe talk a bit about design systems because I think that um, design systems fit that description to a T where it is really difficult challenge to build a design system, especially one that is going to work across a number of different types of products and teams. Um, it's hard and... But when it's done really well, you can clearly see the impact. And I'll just point to one that I'm very familiar with, with which is that Google material design, um, which is something that was launched, you know, four or five years ago. Um, and 
it it is deceptively simple. You know, you look at it and it's beautiful. And, you know, I don't even think most people would notice all of the details of what went into it, the visual details, the craft, the motion, um, the way, you know, it was basically designed around paper and planes and sort of um, movement of real life and nature, and then put into a system where there's components where all of the teams at Google and across the globe, you know, third party OEMs and, and app developers can use it. Um, and, uh, and so it's very complex in that way. Like it's, it was built as a system with, with a set of coded components that people can actually utilize a lot of different people for a lot of different use cases. Um, but it really achieves um, a lot and not that it's perfect, but a lot in its, um, in its impact. So that's, that's one example I think where I would point out. Yeah. Last internship was part-time. I was in charge of basically turning the whole like coded documentation and put it into Figma. And then that was like my first glance into like for a big company, like there's so many different parts and also how parts link to each other. Mm-hmm. It, mounts, it might sound very abstract how I'm describing it, but that's really how it feels like how the components link to the visual styles and then also the visual style links to the branding. So like everything exactly. is a very linked. Yeah. I I think too, something that people sometimes forget that goes into a design system is the the principles of it. Like what are you actually trying to achieve at a higher level? Um, and we're doing that now with Google Play. So we're, we're, we're building on top of material, but we have our own sort of unique differentiated design language. And so, and we've started to do that, but we really are, are now digging in in more detail to like, what are those principles? What are we trying to achieve? We're, we talk about joyfulness, for example. So, okay, great. What, what does that mean? You know, if you, if you surveyed people and you just looked at the bubble over their head of like their inner thoughts, they would all have a different inner thought about what joyfulness means to them. And um, so how do we come up with this brand that includes illustration and motion and writing and interactions um, that can all sort of, you know, epitomize the, that feeling of joyfulness? What is it? What does it mean? And then secondly, how can we measure for success that we know we actually did it? Cause otherwise, you know, we're just talking yeah. <laughs> like dreaming and hoping, but no, yeah. we're not sure. Um, so how do we do that? Which is another really challenging problem. I also wanted to, because you also mentioned you're currently working on the design system at Google Play. Mm-hmm. I think as just someone like me, like design student who are just getting into this field, it's a little bit hard for me to envision what it's like to be, I guess, on the other side of the career like when you're at such a high level so i wanted to ask what's your day-to-day like as a senior director at google yeah um so that's an interesting question um and other some other people have asked me that and i'm always like i don't know the days just go by so quickly (laughs) there's there's a lot but I, i would say um there's different parts of it so number one is working with my team and Um, I feel like my role there is to remove obstacles for them. So I'm always trying to make sure that I, first of all, understand what their obstacles are and what they're doing, what they want to be doing. Um, And I'm trying to sort of make it easier for them, however that is achieved. So that's number one. And there's there's a lot of them, and they're also organized into different teams. Um, They also have different disciplines. So at Google, we have a lot of different UX disciplines, like we have UX writers, we have program managers who are kind of organizing the chaos. Um, we have designers, we have researchers, 
we have UX engineers um, who are doing prototyping. So there's there all of those groups have their own needs. They have their own communities. They have their own um, needs to learn and to grow in their careers. Um, they're also all focused, hopefully, in a similar way on a goal for what we're trying to build. And so um, achieving all of that is takes up a lot of my time. Um, but I also work closely with my partner. So I have these kind of peers that I work with that are leading engineering, leading product management, um, and other other areas for Google Play. And so I spend a lot of time with them, um, both to make sure we're aligned and that our teams work closely. We have a model we call the triad model, which is for each project, we have engineering, PM, and UX leads that are working very closely together um, from the beginning to the end. And they're kind of jointly accountable for success or failure. Uh, they are exploring together. They are kind of joined at the hip. And so I have my own engine PM partners that are the leads of those areas. And then we need to make sure that all of our teams are aligned well and that we, you know, we're we're agreeing on our strategy. And so we do spend a lot of time talking about our strategy, debating it. Um, and then I also spend a lot of time trying to align them on UX, like getting them to come to design sprints, for example, or um, really understanding user needs. Like last week, um, I was at a meeting with them and I brought up a UX research study that we had done that had a video uh, that compared um, some different different products um, that was interesting to them. I did that to try to be an advocate, to try to get the user perspective into the discussion. It was really great because uh, they hadn't seen that before. So those are just some of the things um, that I do. I also work across Google. So I'm in, I lead something called the UX Leadership Council, which is a group of UX leaders across Google. And we focus on the entire sort of, there's a, there's say 4,500-ish UXers at Google now. So Oh it's a God. lot. I know. So we we work across the company to try to help the, all of that community really grow and thrive. So we have we work with HR, for example, on job ladders and role descriptions, and like how do we do the performance review process and promotion process and hiring process for all these amazing UXers. And we work on um, UX community efforts. So like how do we bring people together and educate them on the topics that they might need to know and how do we make sure that we're really um, diverse enough and we're recruiting from the right universities and we're looking at the world globally and not just in the US and, you know, all of these things. So we, so that's another part of my role is working across all of these different leaders and, um, and people at Google, we tend to have things like that, that they do where they're, they work outside of their team. Sometimes we call it 20% time, but it's like, really being able to focus in on areas that are of interest that might benefit the company or the community in different ways and bringing your sort of your talents to the table. Uh, so, so I like to do that. I've done a lot of different roles like that over the years. Yeah. When you said the number of UX people at Google, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> I know it's that's a, lot. a lot of people. <laughs> it's definitely growing still too. Um, so yeah, it's, which is great. And it's a sign of the evolution of UX at Google and how much, we've matured as a company. Um, for me, it's really interesting because I've, the first time I, I worked at Google was um, back in the early 2000s. I had like one of my, so I mentioned it right after Symantec, I went to Google. I only lasted a year. I was, I was a IC. So I was like a kind of a senior, I think my title was like staff designer. Um, and I worked on a, a number of different projects, but back then I think I'm pretty sure I was the 42nd UXer. So 
And now we have 4,500. So I've kind of observed and I've, you know, I left the company, came back, et cetera. So, uh, but I've observed the evolution of UX at Google and it's been really remarkable just to see the the changes um, and it, the way it works today is like, there's no team that would build a product without UX. It's just not even remotely a, a possibility. Whereas the first time I came to Google, most teams didn't have UX. Nobody even knew what it was. It was like, mm. I had to constantly explain yeah. what it was and, <laughs> and what is UX stand for. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really changed a lot. Um, I would say for the better and it will continue to evolve and mature because I think people just really understand that we have to do great UX if we want to succeed in the market. It's just, there's not even a question about that. Trying to be respectful of your time, I do have a final question and this is a scenario. So if you're now facing yourself, but 20 years old, so this is back in college, um, what life or career advice will you give her? Yeah, good question. Um, I think about that a lot. <laughs> I, I also have five children, um, two daughters and three sons. Um, but I think about it for them too. Like, what can I do to help them uh, as they start their journeys? You know. Um, but I would say I think my advice would be to really focus more on um, intuition. And for me, you know, what is my gut telling me and maybe at the beginning of my career my intuition my intuition wasn't as great you know not that it's great now but it wasn't as strong um but it certainly has developed over the years and I think I've paid more attention to to the sort of signals inside me and I think that's because um only only I can control my responses to things and I I also like I said before I feel like life is short the number of years that you have to contribute to this work is not a, a lot um, and so for me, it's like, I want to make the most impact I can with the time that I have. And, um, and so really focusing on what is it that drives me? What is it that really attracts me to something or interests me? And I love to learn, um, you know, there's things that I, I love that, you know, it's just, if I really start to pay attention to what's sort of lighting me up and inspiring me and kind of keeping me going, those are the things that I should follow. And maybe I think early on in my career, I thought more about like, well, what is, what are people going to think? You know, is that the way I should be? Is that the job I should be taking? Cause it sounds mm-hmm. good. Or, um, you know, I don't know, just things like that. Um, yeah. what should I, should I be, you know, Oh, I should probably be a software engineer. Cause that's what I know how to do. And that, that was what I knew how to do coming out of college. I was really good at that, but, um, this design thing was a new, new thing. And some people looked down on it back then, especially where it was like, Oh, that's not as cool. Um, so I still did it, but it was a little harder. So I think it's, it's probably listen to my gut, follow what is lights me up and what I'm passionate about and, um, let it, let it take me where it takes me, you know, I'm not worried so much about, uh, how that's going to work out later. You know, it'll, it'll work itself out. It always has. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I learned about long-term planning is that the part where I learned the most is normally when the plan does not work out and it turns <laughs> like a different direction. Right. Yeah. That's so, very observant. <laughs> yeah. Like I took a gap year last semester and I remember like just being in a gap year, I wrote down all these goals. Maybe it's just partly my fault as well that I'm not really following them, but I learned so much more. And looking back now, I realized that I didn't accomplish any of them, but I gained so much more just because these were kind of like my directions. And then 
they kind of just led me to other other interesting things. Yeah, I mean, goals change, and I think I think goals should change. You know, because every day you learn something new, and if you're not learning something new and nothing ever changes, then something's not going right. That's how I feel. So, um, being able to to revisit and really um, reassess is so so important uh, to do that and do that like thoughtfully and specifically because otherwise life just like I said you're like meeting 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 all day long and sometimes it's like you can just let it go on and on and on and then you end up like wait a minute two years just passed by yeah. <laughs> did I am I doing something that lights me up and I'm passionate hmm. <laughs> right yeah that's also I think the field of UX is just it's promoting people to constantly learn new yes. things as well it's not a very static um monotonous field which i think it was one of the reasons why i got really drawn into it in the first place i agree and i have to say um you and other students um that are doing this it, it really excites me to see and fills me up with inspiration to see people diving into this career path because it really it really is like you said it's it's one that will continuously change but it it's just so fulfilling. Um, I can't think of a better path. If I had to go back, I would, would not ever tell myself to do anything else. Uh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think with that, that caps off the end of the episode. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Heather, for coming Yeah, on. thank you. You too. It was really fun. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time. And again, before we say goodbye, my name is Guo, and you've just listened to the Not Just Pixel Show, and I'll see you in the next episode.